0: One of the great freedoms that veterans have afforded to us in America is the right to a fair trial. The accused are innocent until proven guilty, which is not a privilege necessarily enjoyed in other places in the world. Still, sometimes we find ourselves falsely accused by others, perhaps on a smaller scale. It may not go to trial, so you may be considered at least by some to be guilty even though you are not. Uh, has that ever happened to you? Maybe you, um, g- growing up in school, maybe you got accused of speaking in class when actually it was the kid sitting next to you. It wasn't really you. Or maybe you were that kid um, who subtly got another person to talk and so got them in trouble. But you escaped, right, the, the accusation. Have you ever been falsely accused? Has another person ever accused you of something that you're actually innocent of? What, what can we do in that situation well today we turn to the psalms for help how might we speak and act right and righteously in such a difficult situation david shows us the way forward through his insightful prayer in psalm 17. if you haven't done so already let me invite you to turn in your bibles open your bibles to psalm 17 If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage, Psalm 17, on page 454. We're going to be sticking our nose in the text. And uh, if you don't want to be bored, I'd recommend you open a Bible and follow along as we're working our way through the psalm. And over the next several weeks, we are turning our attention to a handful of psalms. Psalms are our poems, they're songs, they're prayers from the ancient people of God. And as we begin our study of the Psalms, of these select Psalms, we need to remember what Jesus, the Savior, said about the Psalms. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus said this to His disciples. Jesus says, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Psalm 17 finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In that he is the one whose lips were free of deceit. He is the one who was fully just and righteous. He is the one who entrusted himself to God as he was harassed and hounded by evil men in this world. And this is where we're headed with our study, even as we go back to the ancient past. If you've made it to Psalm 17 in your Bible, you'll likely notice an inscription just above the psalm saying something like this, a prayer prayer. Of David. What is a prayer? At its most basic level, prayer is simply talking to God. This talking can take different forms. It can take the form of praise, of confession, of lament, of thanksgiving, of petition. The, the prayer that we're looking at here in Psalm 17 actually contains several of these elements. In particular, this psalm is most prominently uh, contains elements of lament, of, of kind of weariness. And petition, asking God to do something. This ascription also tells us that the psalm's author is David. The uh, the precise historical setting of this psalm is not exactly clear. And what we're about to discover is that David was afflicted. He was accused by wicked men, and he petitions God, Yahweh, to deliver him from evil. And in the end, David he doesn't specify his circumstances. David leaves his trials kind of rather generic. And that's actually a strength of this psalm. The the general nature of this prayer will allow saints after David to to pick up this prayer and to pray it back to God when they are facing the affliction and accusation of wicked men. This psalm will teach them how to trust in God when facing such a circumstance. And this allows even, even us to pick up this psalm and pray it back to God when we're afflicted or falsely accused. Let's read David's prayer now. And as we do, ask yourself if you've ever faced anything like this. Ask yourself if you've ever prayed like this. Most of all, ask yourself if you can hear Jesus' voice in this psalm. Psalm 17, a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord Yahweh. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come, let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart, you have visited me by night, you have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths, my feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words, wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings, from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity, with their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord Yahweh. Confront Him. Subdue Him. Deliver my soul from the wicked men by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord Yahweh. From men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Psalm 17 is structured by three overlapping petitions. In verse 1, David asks that God would hear his prayer, for he's innocent. In verse 6, David once again asks God to hear him and show him his steadfast love. And in verse 13, David finally asks God to arise and act and deliver him from his enemies. As I said, these petitions, they, they overlap, but they also escalate as we move toward the end of the psalm. As we read there in verse 15, the final hope of David is to behold the face of God. As Derek Kidner has said of so many of the Psalms, this one moves from trouble to trust. We'll study David's prayer in three sections under three headings. Plead your innocence, plead for protection, and plead for deliverance. David shows us what to do when we're wrongly accused and attacked. From David and from Psalm 17, we learn that when you're wrongly accused and attacked, you plead your innocence to God. You plead for His protection, and you plead for His deliverance. Let's begin with the first lesson that we learned from David. Plead your innocence. Read Psalm 17, just verses 1 to 5 this time. Hear a just cause, O Lord Yahweh. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. David, he peppers these verses with petitions, doesn't he? He wants God to hear, to attend, to give ear, send vindication, and see his innocence. David wastes no time in his prayer. It is plain, and it is pointed, and it is also painful. David is not softly and tenderly calling Yahweh to listen to him. He's crying out in excruciating pain. You may think that exclamation points are overused in our culture, but they're certainly needed in this psalm. That phrase there, you see, attend to my cry could just as well be translated, attend to my yell. Would it not be distressing if you were innocent, but treated as guilty? That is what David is experiencing. And according to David, Yahweh ought to hear his prayer because it is a just cause. Because he's innocent. According to David, his lips you see there, they're free of deceit. David has not lied, and he's not lying about his circumstance. And as verse 2 comes to a close close david does a bold thing you see at the end of verse 2 there he says let your eyes behold the right and the idea is this look on the righteous one the the just one is this not a bold thing to do imagine inviting the all-seeing infinitely righteous just and holy gaze of god that is what david is doing It sounds like David is praying Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. It sounds like David is praying this Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, because there's not one. That's what David is saying. You see it there in the words of verse 3 You will find nothing. That's what David is saying. Have you ever said anything like that to God? The audacity, right? David elaborates further on his innocence there in verse 3. He calls Yahweh God to remember all the ways that he has examined David. He has examined him from within, from the deepest recesses of his heart. He has examined David in the night. This is what God has done. And it's as if David is saying, Remember the test results, God, that you have in your own possession. I'm innocent. I've kept my tongue from evil. I've kept my lips from speaking lies. It's an amazing claim isn't it who has tamed the tongue who tames their tongue when they're falsely accused it's an exceedingly difficult thing to do david claims to have bridled his tongue not only has david bridled his tongue but he has also walked in righteousness he he is not done violence instead he has walked in the path of god's word when he says in verse four, By the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of violence," he's saying, Look, even by your own standard, God, I have walked faithless I walked faithfully, and I should be accounted innocent. David is not strayed. he's not slipped, he's walked straight. He has been the man who has lived in the main, the opening words of the whole Psalter, Psalm one. 1 to 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. David, he's drawing a distinction. He's showing the difference between himself and his opponents, his accusers. And his basic claim is this. I'm innocent. So hear my plea. Judge me. Now, for those of us who have even just a limited knowledge of the Bible. We know that David is not, in fact, a sinless man. He was guilty of murder and adultery. David is not a sinless man. And even if we grant that this psalm is situated before his dreadful sin with Bathsheba, we know human nature well enough to know that no one is sinless. We've all committed violence. We've all fought with our siblings or our friends. And we've all used our tongues in ways which make us guilty of deceit. Mom walks into the room and she asks, what are you talking about? Nothing. Sure. Mom knows you're lying. You were talking about something. No, we've we've all used our tongues for deceit. What's more, who has ever kept God's word and walked perfectly in his precepts and paths? Anyone who has reflected on human nature for but a brief moment knows the truth that the Bible proclaims in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So how can David, with a seemingly straight face and in all seriousness, (laughs) proclaim his innocence and even ask God to judge him? Well, the clue is there in verse 2. Do you see it? From your presence let my vindication come. It appears that David has been falsely accused. We pick this up throughout the remainder of the psalm as well. David is not claiming perfect innocence or perfect righteousness, perfect sinlessness. Instead, he's claiming to be innocent of what he's been charged with. He's been charged with being a liar and a deceiver. He has been charged with threatening violence. And from David's perspective, nothing could be further from the truth. That's why he protests and pleads his innocence so loudly. And if we think about this text um, in the context of his relationship with Saul, then perhaps that could shed some light on what we're seeing here. David was a hunted man. You remember 1 Samuel 23. He was accused of trying to steal Saul's throne. But David was committed to walking in the ways of Yahweh. David was committed to avoid violence. And he was committed not to lie about the Lord's king or his intentions. David had the opportunity to kill Saul. But he refused. David was innocent in the matter with Saul. And yet his name has been slandered. And he's been hunted. And he's been falsely accused. So David went to the only one who could do anything about it. He went to God, and he asked him to hear his prayer. But what does this mean for us? Well, we need to recognize that in all likelihood, this operates for us on a different level than it did for David. If this took place during David's flight from Saul, and I'm inclined to think that it did, we need to take a deep breath dial the emotions down a notch and recognize with gratitude that we're not being hunted and our lives are not in danger. Now, there are other brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe who are being hunted, whose lives are in real and imminent danger and who have been falsely accused. But for most of us here today, thankfully, we're not facing that situation. We ought to give thanks that our lives are not in such peril. But that still doesn't mean That we're not unjustly criticized or accused from time to time. And that when that happens, that it hurts. It does hurt. It hurts to be unjustly criticized and falsely accused. And when that happens, we have a choice before us. We can respond with exasperation. We can respond with resentment and scorn. In other words, we can turn the tables on our accusers and belittle them as they have done to us. Or we could also respond to unjust criticism with self-justification to those who have laid down the charges. We could tell them all the reasons why they are wrong and why we are right. Or we could respond as David did. You see, a lesson that we learn from David here is that our God is indeed a judge. Right? He is indeed a judge. And that He will decide between the righteous and the wicked. That means we don't have to be exasperated or anxious about what will happen. That means that we don't have to take up the vindication of our own name. And it really does mean that we can entrust ourselves to God. David doesn't say, I'm going to tell my accusers just what I really think of them. No, he simply casts his burden upon the Lord. An additional lesson that we learn from David here is that we should guard our tongues and be guided by God's word. In the face of false accusations, David has bridled his tongue and he has purposed to walk in the path of God's word. We too, when falsely accused or unjustly criticized, should be slow to speak. And we should purpose to plod along the path of God's word when we act. And there's one more lesson that we learn from David in these first five verses. It's that our God does indeed hear the prayers of his children. So we should talk to our Father about the burdens of our hearts. In fact, we should go to him first. And by talk, I mean really talk. Pray until you pray. Take your heavenly Father for a walk and talk to him out loud. And look, just stick the earbuds in your ear and you won't look crazy. You'll just look like you're talking on your phone. Go talk to your Heavenly Father. He loves you and He wants to hear from you. You're free to pray and plead your innocence to God. If you are thoroughly persuaded that you are innocent in the matter, then pray and plead your innocence to God. You may very well be innocent in the matter, but when you open yourself up to the scrutiny of God, like David did here, it's also possible perhaps even probable, that God will reveal to you that you're not as innocent as you think. We should be prepared for that. After all, we're sinners. When you plead your innocence, God may call you to take the log out of your eye before you take the speck out of your accuser's eye. Pray and plead and be prepared to repent. And even as we think about these words, we should think about Jesus. David was righteous in his encounter with Saul, but he wasn't perfectly righteous. David was a good example, but he didn't save us when being unjustly condemned. See, David, he escaped the sword of Saul, but Jesus didn't escape the sword of his accusers. David was a good example, but he wasn't our ultimate example. He pointed forward to Jesus. Listen to what the apostle Peter says about our savior in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 21 to 23. Peter writes, "For to this you have been called." So Christian, listen closely because you're about to hear what kind of life you have been called to. "For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps." Do you hear that? we are to follow in the steps of Jesus, which means we will suffer as He suffered, like He suffered. But how did Jesus suffer? Listen to what Peter says in verse 22 of 1 Peter 2. He, Jesus, committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Jesus has left us an example in which to follow. When we suffer, do not commit sin. Walk in the path of God's word. When reviled, or falsely accused, or unjustly criticized, do not respond in kind. Bridle your tongue and entrust yourself to God. Here is part of your calling based upon Psalm 17 and 1 Peter 2. When confronted with unjust accusations if it is truly the case plead your innocence in prayer to God and entrust yourself and your future to God and His loving judgment and providence there's something else that we can and should do we can and should plead for God's protection that's what we see in verses 6 to 12 of Psalm 17 this is our second point plead for protection read Psalm 17 verses 6 to 12 now I call upon you For you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground he's like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush in these verses the petitions keep coming David asks God to incline his ear to hear his words to show his love to keep and to hide him in verse 6 we hear a petition that we heard before David asks God to hear him but isn't once enough Well, isn't David praying like that persistent widow in Jesus' parable in Luke 18? David keeps asking God to hear him. Are we as persistent in our prayers? Are we as confident as David? You see, verse 6 there, it opens with a, a daring declaration I will call upon you, for you will answer me. David is confident, not only that he is heard, but that God will answer. He is persuaded that he is in the right and that he will not be denied. He has this confidence because David knows the God he's pleading with. This is the God who answers his people. David knows that Yahweh heard the cries of his children when they were enslaved in Egypt and that God answered them. David knows the God who declared in Psalm 91.15, When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. David knows that God cares. And he asks for God To show his care through his love and through his protection. What does David ask of God? You see it there in verse 7. He asks, Wondrously show your steadfast love. Now the, the original readers of this psalm would have immediately recognized that David was playing on the words of Moses, Song of the Sea in Exodus chapter 15. After God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, Moses and the children of Israel sang a song. Like after a big football victory, you know, the school sings their fight song. That's what happened there in Exodus 15. David here, he picks up on the words wonder and steadfast love and right hand found in Moses' song. And listen to these words from Moses' song of the sea in Exodus 15, verses 11 to 13. Moses and the children of Israel sang, Who is like you, O Lord Yahweh among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You have stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. David understands himself to be a child of the Most High God. And he pleads with Yahweh to show him the same kind of steadfast love to him that he showed to Israel when they were set free from slavery in Egypt. And in truth, when David asks Yahweh to Wondrously show his steadfast love. David is asking Yahweh to show his covenant love. That's the idea underneath the words steadfast love. David wants to see God's faithful, committed, covenant love. David is saying, Yahweh, I know that you are the kind of God who is tenaciously committed to his people. And I am one of your people and I need to know that you are near to me. That you're committed to me. Would you make that plain? Let me see it. David's saying, I need to know and see your loyal love. What but the love of God could soothe David's soul in a time of turmoil? What about us? What else can soothe our souls in fear and conflict? Have you ever thought of praying this when afflicted? Why not pray, Father, wondrously show your steadfast love to me? David, he remembers God's loyal covenant love. He asks for Yahweh to make it known to him personally. And tied to this, of course, is the idea that Yahweh is a savior, a a rescuer. When Yahweh revealed to Israel his steadfast love in their slavery in Egypt, he also revealed his saviorhood. God showed his steadfast love by his salvation. And this term savior there in verse 7 is also frequently used actually in the book of Judges. God raised up a Savior and Judge when His people were afflicted by their sin and surrounded by their enemies. In every instance, when God raised up a Judge, He saved them. And that is what David is asking for. David is asking for Yahweh to be His Savior. Have you asked God to be your Savior? Have you asked God to be your Savior not merely from conflict or criticism or or false accusation, but have you asked God to be your Savior from sin? David is asking for Yahweh to be his savior for because he seeks refuge under God's strong right hand. Verse 8 is a beautiful parallel of verse 7. This happens a lot in, in Hebrew poetry. That's what we're reading. In the psalm, we're reading Hebrew poetry, and in Hebrew poetry, an an author will often write one line, and then the second line will will typically be just a a restatement saying essentially the same thing as the first line, but kind of from a different angle, giving us a a fuller and glorious picture. In this instance, David requests for God to show his steadfast love there in verse 7, and then that's paired and and kind of paralleled with, Do you see it there? The request for God to keep David as the apple of his eye. And we, we all know this, um, this is a term of endearment. Right? Here the phrase might uh, be better translated, keep me as the pupil of your eye. Right? The pupil is a sensitive part of the eye, a part that needs protection. David wants protection, but this imagery of the eye is, is broader too. Another idea embedded here is that David doesn't want to escape the Lord's sight. Right? Don't let me out of your sight. Just like a shepherd never stops keeping watch over his sheep, so David doesn't want God to stop watching over him. Just as his steadfast love is constant, so David wants Yahweh's sight on him to be constant. And this too may harken back to the opening uh, psalm in the Psalter, where we read, For the Lord knows or, or watches over the way of the righteous. As believers in Jesus... We have the comfort of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. Christian, God watches over you. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a wonderful way in which He shows His love to us? And then there is that other wonderful phrase there, Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Such a beautiful expression. This is parallels the idea of refuge there in verse 7 this is at at one and the same time kind of immensely affectionate and strong uh, this is a strong idea in the sense that it's actually an image of a, a mother bird protecting her young from a predator and we all know that you you don't mess with the young when mom is around right there's a reason we use ideas like mama bear right a uh, mother will defend her young to the death. But in, in Hebrew literature, instead of having mama bear, we kind of have mama bird. Right? This language, hide me in the shadow of your wings, it's strong, but it's also deeply affectionate. Uh, who can forget this loving language emerges in the beautiful book of Ruth. In Ruth chapter 3, verse 9, Ruth tells Boaz to spread his wings over her. She says, Bo, I want to come under your loving protection and care. I want to be under your wings, near your heart. There may be no better way for a wife to express her love for her husband than to say, hide me in the shadow of your wings. When David asks Yahweh to hide him in the shadow of his wings, he's asking for what Ruth asked for, to know Yahweh's strong protection and deep affection. This ought to remind us of Jesus' heartbreaking declaration in the Gospels. Just before Jesus was rejected, for the last time, he said this in Matthew 23, verse 27. "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. Jesus is willing to gather us under his wings. Are we willing to be gathered do we want desire seek after and plead for his protection in reading these verses we see that david is pleading with yahweh for his protection he's pleading for yahweh's strong committed covenant love to show itself through protection and this is what david wants and it's frankly what he needs he pleads for protection we can see why there in verses 9 to 12 the wicked seek to do him violence they have him surrounded They are not to be trifled with. They want him dead. They intend to show David no mercy. And they make it known with their mouths. In verse 12, 12, David, he pivots to the metaphor of a lion. In order to illustrate the real violent danger he is in. Perhaps this ought to remind us of the enemy that we face. The New Testament reminds us that the devil is like a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8 but that's not all the scriptures say about the devil. We also know from Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, and Revelation 12 10 that Satan is also an accuser. He's a lion, and he's a liar, and therefore a false accuser. And we need the same defense against the devil that David needed against his accusers. He comes after us because he hates God. Satan hates God, and he hates God's children. And when the devil assails us, we must keep praying. I'm reminded of what John Bunyan wrote in his autobiography when Satan assailed him. Listen to uh, John Bunyan articulate his own battle with the devil. He writes, Then the tempter, that's Satan, devil, Then the tempter again assailed me very sorely, suggesting that neither the mercy of God nor yet the blood of Christ did it all concern me, nor could they help me for my sin. Therefore it was but vain to pray. Yet, thought I... I will pray. But, said the tempter, your sin is unpardonable. Well, said I, I will pray. It is for no good, said he. Yet, said I, I will pray. So I went to prayer to God. And while I was at prayer, I uttered words to this effect Lord, Satan tells me that neither your mercy nor Christ's blood is sufficient to save my soul. Lord, will I honor you most by believing you will and can, or him by believing you neither will nor can? Lord, I would honor you by believing you will and can. You have to persist in prayer to keep battling the evil one. The Lord will and can protect his people. So plead for His protection. Reject the evil one's false accusations and take refuge under the wings of the Lord Jesus Christ. David, in Psalm 17, also teaches us to plead for deliverance. It's one thing to plead your innocence. It's another to plead that God would protect you from the slings and arrows of enemies. It's still yet another to ask God to deliver you out of that circumstance, isn't it? to deliver you from evil. And this is the the third lesson we learn from Psalm 17. When falsely accused and attacked, we should plead for deliverance. Let's read verses 13 to 15. Arise, O Lord Yahweh. Confront Him. Subdue Him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord Yahweh. From men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Let's get honest about our Bibles for a moment. Verse 13 is fierce. While it contains the petition to plea for deliverance, did you notice how that deliverance comes about? It comes about through the sword of God's judgment. Salvation comes by the sword. For God to save His people from their enemies, often it means that God must judge the enemies of His people. Right? Think back to Egypt. For God to deliver Israel, He had to send the angel of death throughout Egypt. He sat, had to send that sword. Do you understand what David is praying? He is praying for the Lord God, for Yahweh, to put his enemies to the sword. That's how his deliverance will come. What do we do with verses like these in our Bibles? Do we really want to pray this? Should we pray this? Should we pray for our God to arise and judge? Just how seriously do you take your enemies? And are your enemies really God's enemies? And do you really want to be delivered? We cannot imagine David's enemies to be innocent. They have been falsely accusing him. They've threatened him with violence. And they're merciless. Friends, they're wicked. And it is just of God to punish the wicked. Is it not right to desire justice and to pray for justice? For, for example, we can legitimately desire and pray for those who perpetrate sex slavery, human trafficking, the murder of children and the like. We can pray that if they will not repent, that the Lord would consume them as fire consumes a forest. Psalm 83:14. And think of how loving that prayer is, especially for the victims of such crimes. It is right to pray for justice. It is right to pray for deliverance from injustice. And then to entrust that justice to God. Remember Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. David... We see here, does the righteous thing by leaving the punishment of his enemies in the hands of God. David trusts God. He puts the sword in God's hand, and that's where it belongs. We may pray for deliverance and justice, and we must leave it in God's hands. And consider what we learn about these men in verse 14. These men, David wants to be delivered from. Think, think of what these, it says about these men. These are men of the world... Whose portion is in this life. You understand what David is saying here. These are men absorbed with the things of this world. But that's not all their portion is in this life. As as one brother said. They're only concerned for the here. Right? This world. And the now. This life. In the words of Philippians 3.19. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory is in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. And what's the implication here? If their portion is only in the here and now, then they don't have a portion of the riches in the world to come. This presents a, a contrast between David and these men. David's enemies find their portion in this world, but from Psalm 16:5, you see the psalm just preceding this one? The previous psalm, David says, "The Lord is my chosen portion and cup." What about you? Who or what is your portion? Are you absorbed with the things of today and the things of this world? Are you absorbed with God? Is He all your hope and peace? How might you know? Well, halfway through verse 14, David says that the Lord fills their womb with treasure and they're they're satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. David, as I said, he's erecting a contrast between... Himself and his accusers. While well, the wicked are satisfied with the things of this world, even very good things of this world, like children, the, uh, the the righteous, on the other hand, can only ultimately be satisfied by God, as David will say in verse 15. When when David declares that the Lord fills their womb with treasure, what he's saying is the Lord fills their bellies with good things. See that word "womb" is probably better translated "stomach." They they eat to the full. They enjoy the rich food of this life. And remember, it's the Lord who's giving them these gifts. Every good and perfect gift is from above. But the problem is that they are satisfied with bread and not the one who gave them the bread. Right? They're, they're satisfied with the gift, but not the giver. Do you give thanks to God for His good gifts? Perhaps one of our great sins as the people of God is unthankfulness. Does a good meal point you to him and his generosity? Or is he totally irrelevant to the good things that you enjoy in this life? The good things of this world are meant to point us to the one who made it for us to enjoy. God also generously gives the wicked children. How immensely kind of God. But David goes further. He also acknowledges that Yahweh fills the wicked with riches. They have an abundance, he says there. They have more than they need, more than they can use. More than they can spend, or they can spend it on their infants. They can leave their infants an exorbitant inheritance. Wouldn't you like to have your belly filled by God? Wouldn't you like to have your home filled with children? Wouldn't you like to have an abundance of wealth? wouldn't you like to be able to pass great wealth or riches onto your children? I mean, it sounds like the American dream. Would you be satisfied with all of that? Could you be satisfied with all of that apart from God? Be honest with yourself. If you would be satisfied with a table full of good food, a spouse, a house, children, a fulfilling career and financial security apart from God then is the Lord your chosen portion? If you choose this portion if you make the things of this life your portion then be warned. The psalm is a warning for us. This satisfaction will not last because you will leave this life and you will enter eternity. Your satisfaction will be confined to this life and friend in the length of your existence on this earth, your time on this earth, it is infinitesimally small. It is immeasurably short compared to the time that you will spend in eternity. In the, if the eternal God will not be your portion, if the eternal God will not be your portion in this life, then your portion will be eternally empty in the next. You may have your fill now, but you will not have your fill once you leave this life. And you will leave this life. That's implied in the words at the end of verse 14. And they leave their abundance to their infants. How else does that happen unless you leave this life in death? In verse 15. You see, David, he turns away from what satisfies his enemies. And he contrasts it with what, or better yet, who satisfies him. And here we're saying there's, there's more than one way to be delivered. Right? The Lord may deliver us from our enemies, but he may also deliver us through death. And death for David is gain. You see the, the contrast in those words, as for me. You also see that David's it, his satisfaction is out in the future. It's not in the here and now. It's it's in the future. It's on the day when he beholds God's face in righteousness. It's on the day when he awakes. And when will that be? When he dies, he will awake and be satisfied with God's likeness. You see what David is doing here, right? In his present pain, he is drawing hope from his eternal future. He's drawing hope pleasure from the future here david is drawing hope from the future as one person said he's he's sampling the final outcome of his salvation now david is reminding himself at the end of his prayer that he has a hope beyond this life now his pain hasn't ended his enemies are still active He is still being hunted. He is still being accused. But he is still able to persevere because he knows the pleasure that he will enjoy in his final deliverance. The sufferings that he endures in this life are preparing him for an eternal weight of glory that he will enjoy. Brothers and sisters, you feel like the things you're enduring in this life are heavy. And they are, but they are not as heavy as the glory that you are going to enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. And when you awake, David is reminding himself of his future. And how does David make it through the difficulties of this life? Only through clinging on to the hope of his final deliverance. David knows that he will get to see the face of God as uh, as the the middle school class has learned or is learning the Bible teaches us that the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory you're headed for glory when you die second Corinthians 5 8 teaches us that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord you're not at home but you will be. The Apostle John teaches us that we shall see him as he is. Christian, when you die, you will behold the face of God. You will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what your heavenly father is going to say to you. And you think on your life, now, I'm not so faithful. But he's going to tell you you are because he's going to give you the strength to be faithful and to persevere to the end. You will see the face of your Savior who loved you to the death. Christian, you have this assurance that you will be satisfied with Christ's likeness. You preach that to yourself, right, in those difficult days. I I will be satisfied. It's coming. I will be satisfied. On that day, we will be free of sin, free of conflict, free of all that so easily entangles us, free of all the bodily pains and afflictions of this life, and free of all of our enemies. This is what believers in Jesus will enjoy and will enjoy for all eternity. And that is only because Jesus lived this psalm for us. The truth is is that too often we're not the righteous one of Psalm 17. We're, we're not really David all that often. The truth is that in our natural state apart from God we're not really innocent. We're we're actually more like David's enemies. We've been the unrighteous ones. And we should plead with God for deliverance from the judgment that's justly due to our sin. We want to be quick to distance ourselves from the enemies, the wicked described here in Psalm 17. But we've done precisely what this psalm speaks about. We've blamed and pointed the finger at others. We've wrongly accused them and unjustly criticized them. We've sinned and we've rebelled against God. We've even said it's His fault. We've unjustly accused God. We've used the gifts that God has given us to satisfy ourselves, and and we sin against Him. But the good news of the Bible is that Jesus lived this psalm for us, so that we might be delivered from damnation, from eternal self-conscious torment in hell. The only way that we can see God in righteousness is through trusting in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Consider this psalm laid across Jesus' life. Jesus really did have a just cause. To save those who could not save themselves. He really was the only man whose ever lips were perfectly free of deceit. Verse 1. He is the only one who was always in the right. Verse 2. He is the only one whose heart was always and only pure. Verse 3. He is the only one whose mouth did not transgress. Verse 3. He is the only one who avoided all violence and yet was beaten and bruised. Verse 4. He is the only one who truly held fast to God's path. Verse 5. Jesus was sinless, and yet his enemies surrounded him, verse 9. They took no pity on him, verse 10. They spoke arrogantly and mocked him as the king of the Jews, verse 10. They tore flesh from his body, verse 11, and they nailed him to the cross. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that just as David borrowed hope from his future, so Jesus endured the cross for what? The joy that was set before him. Hebrews 12, 2. And three days after His death on the cross, God the Father vindicated and raised Jesus from the dead. And now Jesus calls all of us to repent of our sins and to believe in Him. Friends, turn from opposing Jesus and plead for Him to deliver you today. Know that Jesus is delighted to deliver all of those who would ever turn from their sin and place their faith in Him to hide under His wings so that God the Father sees His righteousness and not our unrighteousness. All those who trust in Jesus have the guarantee that they will be welcomed into the Father's presence because He has passed through the curtain before us. Jesus has undergone the sword of judgment for us. He has entered into that eternity and He will bring us into it when He delivers us through death or when He returns from heaven. From Psalm 17, We have learned that David pleads his innocence and asks to be vindicated when falsely accused. But this, it points us forward to Christ our Savior, the only truly innocent one. We've seen David plead for protection, and we've been reminded that Jesus invites us to come and take refuge under his wings. And from Psalm 17, we've seen David plead for deliverance, and we've been reminded that we need Jesus to deliver us from the judgment that's due to our sin. Christian, you can endure being falsely accused because Christ was made sin for you. And that was a legitimate accusation against us, but not against him. But he was made sin for us so that we might be made righteous. You can endure unjust criticism because Jesus invites you to take refuge under the shadow of his wings. You can endure difficulties in this life because you will one day behold God's face in righteousness and be satisfied in His likeness. He will be enough. He is enough. Let's pray together.